Well, I invite you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this morning, I'm only going to be looking at one verse, and that is verse 2. And verse 2 will really launch us into the study of this section of 1 Corinthians and provide some indispensable context as we begin our look at these chapters. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let me just read to you verse 2. These are the words of God. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Whenever the Protestant Reformation is mentioned, especially in a church like ours, our minds immediately go to the glorious doctrine of salvation. We equate Reformed theology with things such as the doctrine of justification by faith, or the five solas, or perhaps the five points of Calvinism. And we're certainly not wrong in making these connections, as all of these things were either recovered or re-emphasized in the Reformation of the 16th century. Uh, we, we pattern our church after a very old religion. There's not a whole lot we do around here that's very new. But none of these things represent the crux of the Reformation itself. And so you might be wondering if the Reformation was not primarily about justification or about Calvinism or about the five solas, then what was it about? If you had to pinpoint what was the, the definitive theme of the Reformation of over 500 years ago, I would submit to you that the sine qua non of Reformational theology is the church's worship. It is the church's worship. It was this domain of the corporate worship of God that the reformers directed their efforts at more than any other. And now if you read uh, reformed theologians from the 20th and 21st centuries, you may be left with the impression that the Reformation was all about the doctrine of salvation. Uh, and certainly that has been the large area of advancement uh, on the church in the last few Decades, We focused a lot on the doctrine of salvation. But when you go back to the writings of the reformers themselves, when you read Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Ursinus and Bullinger and all of those other names, you will find that they concerned themselves above all else with the worship of God in the public assembly. And they did this not because they devalued the doctrine of salvation, but because they understood its vital connection with the doctrine of worship. Among the many standards that came out of the Reformation was the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We already mentioned it earlier this morning in our catechism time. And you're all familiar with question one, which teaches us what? What is the chief end of man? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, man's chief end is to worship God. And worship, true worship, can only be offered by a regenerate heart. Only a saved heart 
can offer up true worship to God. Therefore, the reformer's central focus on worship does not undermine their commitment to the orthodox doctrine of salvation. Rather, it exalts the doctrine of salvation to its rightful place as the indispensable means to man's chief end. You were created to worship God. But there's a problem with that. You were born at enmity with God, unable to fulfill the very reason that you were created. So before you're able to fulfill your chief end, which is to worship God, glorify Him, and enjoy Him forever, something has to happen to you. And that something that has to happen to you is you must be saved by the grace of God. Our problem today is that we have disconnected the doctrine of salvation from the doctrine of worship. We have failed to see what the Reformers recognized as the bedrock of their theology. Namely, that salvation is a means to an end, and that end is the proper worship of God. We are saved for that purpose. And the reason why God comes to us in saving grace is to elicit our praise to Him both now and forevermore. After all, it was Calvin that said, quote, If it be inquired then by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence among us and maintains us in its truth, it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts and consequently the whole substance of Christianity. So if you're just sitting there thinking, what did he just say? Here's what Calvin said. The whole substance of Christianity is this. A knowledge first of the mode in which God is duly worshipped. And secondly, of the source from which salvation is to be obtained. Calvin said, the two most important truths of the Christian religion are number one, how God is to be properly worshipped which is the chief end of man and the chief end of Christianity, and number two, how salvation is to be obtained, which is the means to worshiping God. He goes on to highlight the relationship of worship and salvation when he says, quote, there is nothing more perilous to our salvation than a preposterous and perverse worship of God. Now this, this very idea, this very concept uh, that... Uh, worship takes first place even over the doctrine of salvation might, might seem a little out of sorts to us. But I want to remind you of the context in which the Reformation took place. And I want to remind you of what happens when worship is perverted. Because what is worship? What, what is, what is to, to happen in worship? Well, the gospel is to be displayed. Christ is to be the center focus and his person and work are to be the avenues through which we direct our praise. Therefore, everything we do in worship is to picture the gospel. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. We sing hymns about the gospel. We read the word of God where the gospel is found. We preach the word of God where the gospel goes forth, right? So the gospel is at the center of our worship. And the gospel is also the message that saves sinners. If our worship is perverted and our churches are no longer focused on Christ in the gospel, then not only do we lose the right worship of God, but we lose salvation through the gospel as well. And the reformers saw this. 
They saw the perversions of the Roman Catholic Church. They saw the mass. They saw the ceremonies. They saw the human innovations that perverted the gospel. And they said, not only are you not rightly worshiping God, but you're not even preaching a message that can save souls. A man cannot worship God at all apart from salvation. But if he is saved and yet does not worship God properly, he fails to employ his salvation to its God-intended end. Why do we evangelize? I mean, think about that. The number of answers we could give, well, God commands us to. Amen, he does. That's, that's one of the reasons why we evangelize. But is not the answer for that is because we want to see sinners come to worship God? That's why we evangelize. It's not just to, to pad the pews. It's not just to fill the offering box. No, we go out as a church, and I pray you do as individuals, gospel tracts and witnessing, because here's someone in society that is living a pointless life, that is destined for eternal condemnation, and you want to see them praising Jehovah. You want to see them worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you do that? By telling them, now, if you'll just go home and buy a hymnal, and open the hymnal up and start singing, then you'll be worshiping God. No, you don't, you don't do that. Well, if you'll just come to church on Sunday and take the Lord's Supper and put a 20 in the offering box, you'll be worshiping God. No, you don't do that. What do you do? You give them the gospel. Why do you give them the gospel? Because they can do all of the external acts of worship, but if they don't have a heart that is regenerate, they're not worshiping. So our desire then at this church is to not only possess an orthodox understanding of the doctrine of salvation, which is imperative. The church stands or falls on that. But the church also stands or falls on our doctrine of worship. We want to ascend from a right doctrine of salvation to a right doctrine of worship. And we want to use our salvation that the Lord has graciously given us for the reason he's given it to us, which is to worship him. From the means to the end, from soteriology to doxology. This was Paul's desire for the Corinthian church as he begins writing to them in verse 2 of chapter 11. Paul has concluded his response to the Corinthians' question about meat sacrificed to idols, And now in verse 2 of chapter 11, he begins an entirely new section. And in this section, that will take us to the end of chapter 14, Paul will deal with various things pertaining to the public worship of God in the church. So a bit of background would be helpful here before we jump in. As you know, the second half of 1 Corinthians is comprised of Paul's responses to questions that were asked of him by the Corinthians. Uh, Apparently, he received a letter, he received some form of communication in between his first time there in Corinth and the second time there, and he, in that letter, was asked questions. And, And he was given a report of different things that was going on in the church. And so... In chapter 7, he begins answering these questions, and the first set of questions had to do with marriage and intimacy in marriage and all things pertaining to single life and married life and different things like that. And 
That took us through chapter 7. Well, then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul begins answering questions related to meat sacrificed to idols. And he does so by unfolding the doctrine of Christian liberty. And now, in chapters 11 through 14, he will answer questions pertaining to the worship of God in the church. That's the context of chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. And what he's going to do in these chapters is, listen, he's going to correct abuses in the Corinthian assembly. Correct abuses in the Corinthian assembly. This just got me thinking, if Paul were to receive word from the average church in America today, uh, what kind of abuses would he write to correct? Things that go on in the worship of the church that ought not, or things that should go on in the worship of the church that don't. Well, I want you to know that that's not just a problem that the church has been facing recently. Uh, Even in the first century, Paul had to deal with abuses in the corporate worship of the church. And by the way, if we keep that context in mind, that he's dealing with abuses, we would avoid many of the aberrant views of this chapter, or these chapters, specifically 12 and 14. Okay, in, in chapters 12 and 14, Paul is not giving a blueprint for the church to be chaotically charismatic. He's actually regulating the use of spiritual gifts and explaining the proper way that they're supposed to be used. An unbridled, uncontrolled, disorderly exercising of spiritual gifts is condemned in these chapters. There's a a right way to do it. And that's a way that's in decency and order. Well, there's three primary abuses that he's going to address. Number one, there are abuses in the church's worship regarding the roles of men and women. Do we have that problem today? I believe we do. I think we we see that. You know we have that problem today if even the Southern Baptist Convention is starting to say, I think we got a problem with the roles of men and women in corporate worship, and maybe we should think about excluding some of these congregations from our convention. So Paul's going to deal with abuses regarding the roles of men and women in worship. Secondly, he's going to deal with abuses regarding the Lord's Supper. And thirdly, He's going to deal with abuses regarding spiritual gifts in the church. When we understand this, when we see this outline, we can begin to make sense of these chapters. If you don't see that, chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 kind of sound like a, uh, just a thrown-together assortment of random thoughts. So you don't really see how they all connect. But the way that they all connect is that they all pertain to the corporate worship of God and more specifically, specific abuses that were going on in the Corinthian church. In verses 3 through 16 of chapter 11, Paul addresses the abuse of gender roles, and he specifically talks about the practice of the head covering. And then in verses 17 through 34 of chapter 11, Paul addresses the abuse of the Lord's Supper, and he corrects the malpractices of the Corinthians. In chapter 12, Paul transitions to abuses of spiritual gifts And he begins to teach on the exercise of spiritual gifts. And he gives us a view of the church as the body of Christ. We see that so beautifully put together there in chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, he gives us a beautiful poem so we could have something to hang on our kitchen. Right? That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is for. To to make plaques out of it. Right? The love chapter. Um, No, actually 1 Corinthians 13 has a context. And the context of 1 Corinthians 13 
is chapters 12 and 14. And what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is he's highlighting the relationship between love and spiritual gifts, and he's making the argument that love is actually the greatest of all spiritual gifts. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13. It was not given just so we could have a cute bumper sticker. But it was given so that we could understand that, hey, we can speak in tongues and we can prophesy and we can preach and we can have healings and we can understand gender roles and have good theology. And if we don't have love, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's a very important chapter, but even more so when we understand it in context. I can't wait to get to that chapter. And then in chapter 14, he continues his teaching on spiritual gifts. That's how we know what the context of 13 is, right? Because when Paul was writing this epistle, he didn't write it with chapter and verse divisions. So he put that teaching on love right smack dab in the middle of a teaching on spiritual gifts. So he comes to chapter 14 and he continues his teachings on spiritual gifts and he deals explicitly with the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. So this is where we're heading over the next few months. And if that doesn't excite you, you probably don't have a pulse. (laughs) Because let's just face it, for better or for worse, these chapters and these subjects, head coverings, communion, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, the love chapter, these are some of the most exciting and also some of the most controversial chapters in the entire book. Um, For the last several years, two years it's been, anytime I mention to another preacher especially that I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians, they always say, ooh, when do you get to chapter 11? Because that's when it really gets exciting, right? And it gets hard to interpret and you get to talking about all sorts of things uh, that, that just excite us. So my goal is not to sensationalize these texts, um, nor is it to push any uh, certain agenda or stand on any hobby horse. In fact, I I pray that God will help me to pick up the pace here so we can actually get through this book. Uh, But my goal, as is always my goal when I stand in the pulpit, is to faithfully proclaim what thus saith the Lord. And the beautiful thing about expository preaching is that there's no way to say, oh, this section is controversial, it's hard to understand, let's just skip it. We don't have the liberty to do that. So we need to, uh, to painstakingly at times, but we need to be steadfast and and reading the word, and digesting it, and preaching it faithfully. On the other hand, I make absolutely no claims to be uh, an infallible exegete. And let let me give you a spoiler alert. I guarantee you I'm going to say things that each and every one of you at some point will disagree with. And the beautiful thing about a church is, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. But I do covet your prayers as I seek to make sense of this text and to preach it faithfully, and that we all would get something out of the word. Well, my goal today, however, is to simply look at verse 2. Because verse 2 really sets the stage and gives us the context for this whole section. Uh, I want to preach verse 2, not just because it puts off an inevitable head-covering sermon, though praise God it does do that, uh, but because verse 2 serves as Paul's transition into this new section. And it sets the stage for us, gives us the context If we understand verse 2, then the subjects Paul will soon discuss won't seem so arbitrary and unrelated to you. Um, Again, without the context, the, the, the list of topics just seems a bit odd. How do these things relate to one another? Well, they relate to one another because Paul is dealing with abuses. 
Paul is not, in these chapters, nor anywhere in the New Testament, writing a systematic theology on the doctrine of worship. Okay, so there's going to be plenty about corporate worship that won't be mentioned in these chapters. That's why we need all of the Word of God, right? And that's why we need systematic theology to formulate doctrine. But what Paul is doing is addressing specific topics and specific instances that I'm sure will be a blessing and apply to us. And uh, look, if we can preach and apply meat sacrifice to idols to us, I know we can apply this stuff to us, right? So let's see what God has for us. We see in our text that Paul praises the Corinthians because they kept the ordinances as he delivered them to the church. This really is the overarching principle in relation to this study of corporate worship and what goes on and what doesn't go on. And the principle is this. God praises his church when we worship him in the way that he prescribes. He praises his church when we worship him in the way that he has prescribed. But verse 2 really kind of makes us scratch our heads a little bit, does it not? If we know anything about the Corinthian church... It's that this is a church with some serious problems. In fact, the overwhelming majority of the Corinthian epistle can be understood as Paul correcting the problems of the Corinthians. And some of these problems are quite profound. And so how in the world do we make sense of Paul's praise and affirmation pronounced upon the church? A church that had a man living with his father's wife, a church that had members getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, a A church that had members suing one another in pagan courts. A church that had members going down to the pagan temples and participating in false worship. How can Paul praise them? That's the question we need to answer when we look at verse 2. And by way of a title, I want to give you God's church, God's ordinances, and God's praise. And as we answer this question, there are three things that I want to show you about these ordinances that will answer that question for us and give us the context for this whole study. And number one, the first thing I want you to see about these ordinances is that they are received from the apostles. They are received from the apostles. He says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, keep the ordinances, as I delivered them to you. Now the word that Paul uses in verse 2 that the King James translates as ordinances is translated as traditions in most modern English versions. Uh, Both translations are helpful. Uh, The modern versions help us to see the historical context of the word. Paul is uh, uh, echoing back to Jewish traditions and their place in the religious economy of the Old Testament. Uh, But however, the word ordinances helps us to see the strength of the word. Because the biblical definition of the word traditions differs very much from its modern usage. Uh, Today, when we talk about traditions, we're often referring to a custom or a social convention that developed over time and became standard procedure. Uh, For instance, in America, we have the tradition on the 4th of July, we shoot off fireworks, right? It's a tradition we have. Uh, Some of you may observe the tradition of eating black-eyed peas and cabbage and cornbread on January 1st, New Year's Day meal, right? There's no authoritative command from God to do these things, but they're cultural traditions, and they're wonderful. We enjoy them. We participate in them. 
This is not, however, how the Bible defines a tradition. A tradition, in the biblical sense, refers to an authoritative divine teaching that has been passed down through history by the people of God. So when Paul speaks of traditions, he's invoking the language of the rabbinical structure. You know, it's, it's fairly recently in church history that we've all had a completed copy of the written scriptures. And in the first century, the church would have largely relied on traditions that were primarily passed down orally. They were orally transmitted down through generations. Paul ministered in such a day. And that is how they, in that day, followed sound doctrine. They had apostolic traditions Some, yes, were passed down in writing, but also orally. Christ, in his earthly ministry, taught and instructed his apostles, and then the apostles passed down those teachings to the early church. And these traditions were not mere social customs. They were the church's authority because their source was the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 is not the only place where Paul speaks of traditions in such a way. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Right? So we see traditions passed down in writing and traditions passed down orally. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Listen. I'm not going to walk away from you and break fellowship with you if you don't eat black-eyed peas and cornbread on January 1st. That's just a cultural tradition. But Paul says if you break apart from this tradition, the apostolic tradition as given by our Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot walk with you. We can't fellowship with you. We can't be in the same church with you. So when Paul speaks of delivering traditions, as I deliver them unto you, He's referring to the passing down to the church the very teachings of the Lord Jesus himself. Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered unto you first that which I also received. Well, who did he receive it from? The Lord Jesus Christ. He receives it as an apostle from Christ and then he delivers it to the church. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Later on in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So we see here that there is a such thing as good tradition. Not all tradition is bad. And it is this issue of tradition that separates us from the Roman Catholic Church. Sometimes you'll hear evangelicals say things like, we believe in sola scriptura. We are free from traditions. Well, wait just a minute. That is not an entirely accurate representation of the Protestant position. Yes, we do believe in sola scriptura, but we very much believe and affirm all apostolic traditions. And there's no contradiction between those two doctrines, sola scriptura and apostolic tradition. 
because we believe that all tradition that is necessary for faith and life is contained in the Holy Scripture. So yes, we reject extra-biblical traditions, but we do emphatically affirm the apostolic tradition that is found in our Bibles. Rome, on the other hand, teaches that we must have Scripture and tradition. It's not enough to just have the Bible. You also need the tradition that is passed down from the Pope to the bishops, down through the hierarchy, the clerical hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Their view is Scripture and tradition. Our view is that Scripture is tradition. Scripture is tradition. When we affirm sola scriptura, we are affirming all of the apostolic traditions that were taught by Christ to the apostles, delivered to the church, and inscripturated in the New Testament. So you say, we need to follow the doctrine of the apostles. I say, amen. But there are no apostles living today. The last apostle died 2,000 years ago. So how can we follow the doctrine of the apostles? Even though, you know, there was an apostle who showed up at our latest evangelistic outreach. At least that's what they claimed to be, right? I, I think it was, I don't know who it was, Jackson or somebody, but they came over and they, uh, we, we saw them outside of their car just listening in and one of our men went to talk with them and they came back and uh, I think it was Jackson that goes, praise the Lord, you know, an apostle showed up to hear us street preach today, you know. And we laugh at that kind of stuff. There are those in our day and apparently in our town that claim to be apostles. But let me tell you that the last apostle died 2,000 years ago. There are no apostles living today. Well, brother, then how do we follow the apostles' doctrine? Well, thankfully, they left us a lot of writing. We have the very teachings of Christ given to the apostles, written down in the New Testament, and that serves as the standard of apostolic teaching that we have Today, For more study on this whole issue of tradition and uh, Rome and the Protestant position, just look at Calvin's commentary on 1 Corinthians 11.2. He goes on and on about this issue of tradition because it was such a battle in his day. Well, perhaps, perhaps we're not battling at the forefront. We're not battling the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. But here's what we are battling in our day. We're battling a view that wants to say that the Bible is, is good and all, but what we really need in our churches are cultural traditions and the way we've always done it. And, well, this worked for great-granddaddy, and it worked for his son, and it worked for grandpa, and it worked for my dad, and it works for me. Well, when our traditions don't line up with the tradition, then we must go with the Bible so while the term traditions is accurate, the term ordinances is helpful because it shows us the weight and authority of the term. We're talking about things that God has ordained to be done in the church. And what I want you to understand is that apostolic traditions have been given by God to the church. And so with this appropriate definition in place, now I want us to look to the purpose of these traditions or these ordinances. Why did God give them? So we've, saw, we've seen that they are received from the apostles. But secondly, I want you to see, they regulate the church. These traditions regulate the church. Notice he says, you keep the, the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Paul gave the ordinances 
to the church. It was the local New Testament church that receives the apostolic tradition. Not one man. Not a pope. Not a bishop. Not a preacher. The church was given the apostolic tradition. Having properly defined them, we now begin to consider their divine function. When Paul speaks of keeping the ordinances, he's not only referring to the two, what we, we often refer to as the church ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, although they certainly are included in apostolic tradition. Rather, he's referring to the totality of the New Testament's teaching and instruction. The question is this, what role does the New Testament play in the life of the church? That's how we answer the question. What's, what's the purpose of apostolic tradition? Well, what role does the New Testament play in the life of the church? The answer, the New Testament regulates and governs the church. Now, this is true of the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament does regulate and govern the church as well, but in a way that's different from that of the New Testament. The, regul the Old Testament regulates the church as it's interpreted through the lens of the New Testament. If the Old Testament regulated the church in the same way that the New Testament does, then we would be sacrificing bulls and goats on an altar this morning, right? So the Old Testament regulates the church through its moral principles as they're interpreted through the lens of the New Testament. But the New Covenant Church, and that's what we are, we're not the Old Covenant Church, Israel in the Old Testament. We're the New Covenant Church, and we are bound to follow our new covenant constituting document. The application is especially true regarding the worship of the church, which is its chief reason for existing. Worship in the church is to be strictly regulated according to the teachings of the New Testament. That's really what I'm contending for this morning, is that our worship must be strictly regulated according to the teachings of the New Testament. The apostolic tradition given by Christ to his apostles and then inscripturated in the Holy Bible was issued to the structure, to structure the worship of the church. That's why we have the New Testament. One of the reasons we have the New Testament is to regulate the worship of the church. And it is that belief that shapes what we do here at Christ Fellowship. Um, it's no surprise and it's no secret that those who come here for the first time, uh, even some that have been around a while, are often shocked. I don't know if shocked is the right word, but uh, impressed. Uh, uh, they, they take note of the fact that we do things a little differently. We, we, we order our worship a little differently. Uh, we have things in our worship that you don't see very often, and we exclude things that are very common in a lot of circles. I I've been living under a rock uh, in this world for a while now, and I'm oblivious to even some of these things. And from time to time, I'll hear people that'll come up to me and say, you know, at such and such a place, they did such and such a thing. And I'm just thinking, really, in a New Testament church? I, I almost can't believe it. But at the end of the day, if you, if you want to know why, why do we do these things? Why do we order our worship the way we order our worship? It is because we want in as much as we can to order our worship after what we see in the New Testament. Well, this teaching has been referred to as the regulative principle. The regulative principle. And it's the regulative principle 
is simply, and this is really important to understand, it's simply the application of sola scriptura to the public worship of God. My contention, our church's contention, I pray it's your contention, is that in order to design a church and and plant a church that God accepts and approves of, you only need one book. And it's this book. It's all you need. Now, do we read other books? Yes, we read other books that help us understand this book. But when it comes to how we're going to design our service, and we're, how, what are we going to do? What are we going to sing? What are we going to say? Are we going to preach? Are we going to pray? Are we, what, what are we going to do? There's one book that gives us all those answers. And that is the Holy Bible, and specifically the New Testament. When we say that we follow the regulative principle, we are saying that what we do and don't do in the corporate worship of God must be determined by Scripture alone. When we say that we follow the regulative principle, we are saying what Calvin said in his treatise, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, quote, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. Amen. When we say that we follow the regulative principle, we're saying what the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says in chapter 22 in paragraph 1, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just and doth good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that we may not be uh, be, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. To, to summarize this statement, what God commands is right, what he doesn't command is wrong. And most importantly, when we say that we follow the regulative principle, we are saying what God said in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 32, what things soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. See, brothers and sisters, we have no right. Who do we think we are to institute anything in the public worship of God that God has not instituted in his word? And that which he has instituted, we have no right to leave out of our worship. Because to do either of these things would be to violate the apostolic tradition that is found in our Bibles. It's amazing that secular organizations and companies understand this principle very well. But the church has a hard time with it. Uh, the Department of Transportation which our brother works at, is a government organization, government agency, and it, ha it, it has its right to legislate its own rules and its own conduct. And I can't say, well, because I'm a citizen of Tennessee, I just get to march down there to TDOT and just tell them how to do their jobs. I don't get that right. I, I'm not the one that created that agency and that organization. I'm not the one who created those jobs and furnished the equipment. I, I didn't do that. I have no right to just march in there and Tell them how to do their jobs. Well, brothers and sisters, you and I are not the ones who built the church. We didn't write the Bible. We didn't save sinners. 
by the death of our only begotten son and call them to worship us. God is the one who built the church. And God alone has the authority to legislate what we do in our worship. The New Testament has a term for worship offered to God that is not commanded in Scripture. Turn with me. Hold your place to 1 Corinthians 11. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 and in verse 20, the Bible says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men? Notice, he's making a distinction between the commandments of God and the commandments and the doctrines of men. And then verse 23, he says, Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The Bible refers to unauthorized worship as will worship. That is worship implemented by the will of man and not by the ordinance of God. The New King James translates this phrase as self-imposed religion. The ESV and the New American Standard Translate the phrase, self-made religion. The point is the same. It is worship, it is religion that man creates and invents and offers to God that God never authorized. Now there are those who follow what they call the normative principle. Historically, this is the Anglican position. However, in modern evangelicalism, it's really the position that's adopted by nearly all contemporary churches And the normative principle, notice it's a subtle difference, but their principle asserts that we can do whatever we want to in worship so long as it's not explicitly prohibited. There's a difference. The regulative principle says we must only do and we may only do that which God commands. The normative principle says we can do anything we want so long as God doesn't condemn it. And so they say there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt not have a play in church. So they cancel the morning sermon and they have a skit. Well, there's no verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not have a dance performance. So before the pastor gets up to preach, they have the interpretive dance team that comes out and dances in the corporate worship of God. Oh, there's no verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not have a solo vocalist sing a song for the church. So in many churches, many solid and sound churches, you will have it every Sunday that... Sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, he'll get up with his guitar and she'll get up and she'll sing a special from the bottom of her heart. And the whole church will sit as an audience being entertained. Is there anything inherently sinful about dancing? About a skit? About singing a song, performing a song? Is there anything inherently sinful about any of those things? Well, they would say, no, that is not explicitly condemned in the word of God. The problem is, it's never been instituted in the public worship of God. you find no example of it in all of your Bible for those three things and many others. What I hope that you see from Scripture is that God not only condemns in worship the things that he has explicitly prohibited, but also those things which come from human innovation that he himself has never instituted. And when we begin to include will worship, what we're really saying is that we're smarter than God. 
Now, God, I know that you've told us in your word, preaching and praying and singing and uh, baptism of the Lord's Supper. And I know that you've, but, but Lord, we, we really have a good idea this time. And God says, I don't need your good ideas. I've told you how I'm to be worshiped and how I'm to be approached. Well, time would not permit an exhaustive study of the regulative principle, and time is already eluding me. But I hope that you see that this is the reason why we structure the elements of our worship in the way that we do. We see in Scripture that God has instituted the reading of the Word, the preaching of the Word, the singing of hymns, the singing of psalms, prayer as the ordinary traditions that we are to implement in our worship, And then, of course, he's implemented baptism and the Lord's Supper as things that the church should ordinarily and regularly practice as his providence allows. Therefore, these are the things that constitute the worship of our church. And let me just say, before we move on to our last point, that the regulative principle, I know our natural tendency whenever we think of regulations is, I don't want regulations, right? But the regulative principle is such a liberating thing. Because it's not up to us to sit around and have church growth strategy meetings and think, well, what do we need to bring in to really build the church? And what do we really need to do to attract people into the worship of God? And what new thing can we do to generate some emotional experience? We also don't have to worry about whether or not God is pleased with our worship. The truth is, if the word of God is rightly preached and spiritual prayers are prayed, and the word is read, psalms and hymns are sung, we have a call to worship and we have a benediction, even if I didn't get anything out of it, even if I left church not really feeling on the highest of clouds, God was rightly worshipped. God was rightly worshipped. Well, there's one final thing that we must learn about the ordinances of God, and this is where we find the answer to that question asked at the beginning of the message. How in the world can Paul praise the Corinthians Thirdly, we see that the ordinances, they result in the praise of God. He says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. With this carnal church and all of its overt problems, how in the world can the Apostle Paul find reason to praise them? Well, some argue that he's using sarcasm. And while he's done that before, especially in this epistle, um, you know, some, some people will say to me, well, in our home, we just don't believe in using sarcasm. I just say, I feel bad for you. You're missing out. Uh, because Paul uses it quite often. However, that doesn't seem to be the meaning of his words here. Others argue that this is flattery. Because he's going to spend the next four chapters rebuking and correcting. Perhaps he's making up something nice to dull the edge of his rebukes. We do that, don't we? Sometimes in our conversations. Well... That interpretation would be completely out of step with Paul's character and his approach to ministry. So let me offer two interpretive suggestions. And one suggestion has to do with the nature of the ordinances themselves. And the other has to do with the ministerial outlook of the Apostle Paul. Number one, Paul can praise the Corinthians for keeping the ordinances because even when done incorrectly, it is still better to observe them wrongly than not to observe them at all. Put yourself in the mindset of a first century church planter. You go to Corinth. You preach the gospel. God saves a motley crew of sinners. 
that come from all sorts of different pagan backgrounds. They've never heard a sermon. They know nothing about preaching. Uh, They know nothing about the Bible. They know nothing about what baptism is and what the Lord's Supper is. And you spend a year teaching them all of these things. And then you leave. You go to the next city. And a year goes by and you receive word from the church. You're not surprised about the problems. You're not surprised that they're not perfectly doing everything you taught them. You find out that they're practicing some major errors. And so you need to write to them and you need to correct those problems. But there's also a part of you that rejoices to hear that a year has gone by and this infantile church with all its deficiencies is still reading the word, still preaching the word, still praying to God and still observing baptism in the Lord's Supper. They may not be doing it entirely right, but at least they're doing it. And they're doing it wrong is better than they're not doing it at all. You know, I've just explained and gone into the regulative principle. And I don't want any of you to get the impression that we would just pronounce anathema maranatha on any church that dares to do anything in their worship differently than us, even if we may disagree with that practice. Anytime I hear that a church is meeting together, reading the word, preaching the word, observing the ordinances, praying, singing hymns, singing psalms, my heart rejoices. Uh, in, in West Tennessee, West Kentucky, you know, I, I learned there's a big uh, conflict over the right way to observe the Lord's Supper. And there's a big debate over the proper elements and should it be an open table or a closed table or how should the table be observed. And there are some churches that will go so far as to say that if you use unfermented grape juice in your supper, you're not even a true church. I've heard people make that argument. But you know what was always so funny to me is that the churches that made that argument partook of the Lord's Supper maybe once every few years. Well, it's better for a church to use grape juice and regularly partake than to use fermented wine, even though that is the element that we use in our supper, and partake once every few years. You see? We believe that that the, the meat and potatoes of a church's pulpit ministry is expositional preaching. The healthiest preaching to incorporate in the church is verse-by-verse preaching. We believe that around here. Well, if there's a church that's never had an expositional sermon ever preached in their church, but the Word of God is faithfully read and, and, and a man called of God gets up and makes some applications and expounds upon it, praise God. I'm glad that's happening. You see what I'm saying. It's better to keep the ordinances, even if we're not doing them perfectly, than to not keep them at all. And Paul rejoiced that they kept the ordinances. What we learn from this, and this should all cause us to rejoice, is that God praises his people even when they do things imperfectly. And that's a comfort to us because everything we do is imperfect. God acknowledges things as valid even when they're improper. Well, secondly, we see that Paul praises the Corinthians because affirmation and praise is encouraging and refreshing. So this is a little bit of a pastoral explanation here, but I want you to understand there's very little virtue or positive effect in absolutely blasting people all the time. Some of you didn't know that. Some of you, some, some of you think that was actually the right approach. To, to, you should just always be 
ripping people to shreds, right? Well, that's not Paul's approach. Paul knows that he's about to spend four chapters rebuking the practices of the church, so he goes out of his way to affirm what he can. Why? Because encouragement in the midst of correction gives us hope. Many of us would look at a church like the Corinthian church and say, surely there is no hope for that God-forsaken place. All the mess they got going on down there, there's no redemption possible for them. They ought to just close the doors, sell the building. But Paul says, yes, there are problems, but with a little bit of affirmation and a whole lot of correction, God can still use even this church. And you know, the, the interesting thing about that is that history testifies that a solid church existed in Corinth centuries after Paul planted it. So apparently the church was able to receive this correction to some degree. Paul was not one of those people that prided himself in always telling it like it is and speaking his mind. If I always spoke my mind, I would be a total jerk. Some of you are thinking, you mean a bigger one than you already are? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because I'm really good at being very quick to examine a church or to examine a preacher or to examine a church member and immediately see what they're doing wrong and hone in on it and rake them over the coals for it. I don't have to practice at doing that. But oh, how hard it is to see the imperfection, but then also to see the good that's there as well. And then how even harder to praise the good. If Paul was able to find a reason to praise the Corinthians, then we should be able to find a reason to praise even those churches and preachers and church members with whom we have serious disagreements. Let me close with a few very quick practical applications. Number one, let us strive to worship God in the way that he has commanded and not only keep his ordinances, but keep them rightly. Even though God praises the Corinthians when they worship him imperfectly, this does not give us an excuse to accept imperfections when we realize it as such. The way we worship God matters. It is the reason he saved us, and it is the reason that we're still here. It's the reason you're not dead yet. And so as we talk about head coverings, the Lord's Supper, host of spiritual gifts, we're talking about regulations that God places on the worship of his churches. Secondly, let us strive to be more praising and affirming than we are. Correction always outweighs affirmation. Always. Every pastor knows this. Ten people come up to you, hey, good sermon, really appreciated your message. But that one person that comes up to you and says, I disagree with everything you said, it's the worst sermon I've ever heard. Who do you think you're thinking about in the car ride on the way home? Congregations know this too. Everything in the sermon is so encouraging, everything's great, but that one little thing that you didn't like or you didn't agree with, it sticks in your side. Ruins your whole Sunday sometimes. The first time he says one little thing you don't agree with, you're gone. That's how it is in most churches. You love him as long as he's saying everything you believe and you agree with, but the true test of faithful church membership is what happens when something's said from the pulpit or something's done in practice that you don't agree with. We live in a consumer age where you're able to just walk out the door and take 100 yards down the street and go into the next church. What Paul is teaching us here is that we need to 
look past the petty differences and praise the good. And when we see someone in the church serving the Lord, we ought to recognize that. And we ought to praise them for what they're doing. You know, it's okay to tell people, good job. Thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. It's okay to tell your pastor, good sermon. It's okay for pastors to tell their church members, you know, I've noticed you've been doing this and I'm just so thankful that you're doing that. And what a blessing you are. Is that not what we see in Proverbs 27 and verse two? Let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. If God praises us, think about this. Because yes, this is the word of Paul to the Corinthians, but this is the word of God to the church. And if he praises us for keeping the ordinances as imperfectly as we do, how much more ought we to praise one another? We're not to be men pleasers, but we should be men praisers. And when we worship God, keep his ordinances, and praise and affirm one another, then it is we who receive the praise of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us, Lord, and I pray that you help me to stand firm and stand fast and to obey my own preaching. Sometimes I find that to be the greatest struggle, Lord. I confess that my heart is often far too critical and that I often don't give the grace that I know I need myself. Would you help us all in this regard? And would you help us to be charitable and to be loving, but also to be firm in the way that we come together to worship you? We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah.